Part 4. Negotiating the Transition Chapter 16. BC. Negotiations 1984-1991 It is legend now that the negotiations can be divided into two distinct epochs, BC and after C, before Cyril and after Cyril, Tim Cohen. I can't see negotiations being successful. You know, I think that people are a little bit utopian about this. I'm working to have them perceive the realities. Raymond Sutner The road to talks had been long and winding. Throughout the 1980s, powerful forces had pushed the leaders of the ANC and the National Party towards negotiation. By the time F.W. de Klerk seized the state presidency in late 1989, there had been a wide variety of contacts between liberation movement leaders and representatives of the regime's civilian intelligence services. Equally important, South African business had created channels of communication that would allow the second hidden transition in the economy to take place without ideological conflict. While those driving these initiatives did not have the authority to negotiate a post-apartheid settlement, they were able to create a deeper understanding between leaders in politics and business about the perspectives and demands of their antagonists. Most of the small coterie of politicians who were to play major roles in the negotiations in the early 1990s had valuable experience interacting with their enemy in the long and violent years of the 1980s. Of all the regime's participants in the negotiations process, Neil Barnard, head of the National Intelligence Service, had the most extensive interactions with the ANC. As a result of his domestic intelligence gathering, he also had a clear sense of the foibles of the hardliners in the National Party and the military. In December 1991, he would bring this wealth of experience to bear when he became Director General in the Constitutional Development Department, later acting as one of government's three key negotiators alongside Rolf Mayer and constitutional adviser and state official S.S. Fani de Villiers. Barnard's National Intelligence Services was descended from the notorious Bureau of State Security, but it had started the 1980s as a junior to police intelligence and the military intelligence department, which had both grown in power in a militarizing state. The rise of NIS under Barnard was made possible by the failures of military intelligence and the police. According to the historian James Sanders, the failure of military intelligence department and the police quickly to stem the insurrection of the mid-1980s and the disaster of Quito Cuanavali in Angola destroyed the supremacy of the military intelligence department and reopened the door to Neil Barnard and the National Intelligence Service. Barnard was a very young and highly educated man who saw the world quite differently from the career bureaucrats dominating the security establishment. He had decided as early as 1984 that it was essential to reach an agreement with the ANC before our backs were against the wall. His number two at the National Intelligence Services, Mike Lowe, and his number three, Moritz Sparwater, were of like mind. Lowe, who was to succeed Barnard as head of the NIS in 1992, told Financial Times journalist Patty Waldmeier that we could see no light at the end of the tunnel. We realized that there had to be a total change of direction, otherwise we were simply going to fight to the last man, and whoever inherited this country would inherit a wilderness. And we knew that the longer we waited, the more difficult it was going to be to climb out of this hole, that it would be better to start negotiating while the government of the day still had some power, while South Africa was still a going concern. Barnard's insistence that negotiating now was better than negotiating later was to dominate the government's strategy right up until the 1996 signing of the final constitution. According to Tarsus Delport, this presumption was a curse that also infected Rolf Mayer, who was to become the government's chief negotiator. It would be quite wrong to see the National Intelligence Service as a bright light in the darkness of the apartheid state. On the contrary, 
a wider consensus had already emerged in much of the public service that negotiations should begin and that multi-party democracy, a unitary state, the reincorporation of the Bantu stands, the release of political prisoners and free political activity were all necessary and urgent concessions. National Intelligence Services, by contrast, was engaged in a strategy of at best partial reform, seeking to divide the liberation forces in order to control them. This approach had various facets. NIS encouraged and supported Bantustan leaders such as Mangosutu Butulezi and Lucas Mangope, believing them to be counterweights to the ANC and potential allies of the National Party in a future dispensation. It sought to exclude the South African Communist Party from negotiations and drive a wedge between the party and the moderates of the ANC. It also attempted to divide the internal ANC and particularly the purportedly moderate Nelson Mandela from the exile movement in Lusaka. Later, National Intelligence Service tried to separate more moderate exiles, such as Thabo Mbeki, from their allegedly militaristic comrades, such as Chris Hani. Barnard's initial focus was on Mandela, who had initiated contact in 1985 by requesting a meeting with government. Mandela was alerted to the danger of being lured into a reformist scheme without the consent of the leadership in Lusaka. Through the limited communication with Tambo that was made possible by George Bezos in 1980, he made it clear that he was not overstepping his authority. An extraordinary sequence of 47 meetings between Mandela and representatives of the government took place, initially involving Justice Minister Kwabi Kutsia. As we have seen, such meetings, and especially the later decision to request a meeting with President P.W. Boerter, were a cause of great controversy in the ANC and the UDF. They were rendered legitimate, according to ANC protocol, largely retrospectively, once Operation Vula had ostensibly established more direct communications between Polsmoor and Lusaka. While Kobi Kotsia was initially the convener, Neil Barnard quickly became the key interlocutor in more formal meetings with Nelson Mandela, which began in May 1988. A team of four was assembled to meet regularly with Mandela, headed by Barnard and including his deputy Mike Lowe and the modest career public servant Fani van der Merwe, who was to become central to the later negotiations process. Barnard was to describe the meetings as an effort on the part of knowledgeable persons to establish how Mandela's head worked, including trying to assess his positions on key questions such as economic management and nationalisation. The meetings also addressed thorny issues of great importance to the security establishments of the two antagonists, the amnesty process for combatants, the freeing of political and military prisoners, the definitions that would be adopted for war criminals, and the nature of guarantees for non-persecution of offenders in the event of a settlement. The meetings were also intended to readjust Mandela to the world he would find outside prison, one dramatically changed from the 1960s South Africa of his experience. Barnard soon decided to initiate wider meetings with the exile, ANC. According to the historian James Sanders, National Intelligence Service was a facilitator of the 1987 meeting organized by Frederick von Slabert in Dakar, Senegal, at which 50 Afrikaner intellectuals met with representatives of the ANC. This claim seems to be rest on a misunderstanding of the real position of Barnard, who is in fact hostile to the initiative. Nevertheless, National Intelligence Service soon brokered contacts initiated by Tambo. The exile leader had requested Rudolf Agnew, chairman of British mining company Consolidated Goldfields, to fund and facilitate meetings between the ANC and Afrikaner intellectuals. Goldfields' communication director, Michael Young, identified Stellenbosch academic Willy Esterhazer as a likely interlocutor. When Barnard became aware of the impending meetings, he asked Esterhazer to report back on his contacts with the ANC. Esterhazer agreed, but on condition that the ANC leaders were aware he was playing this role. 
In this way, when Esther Hazer took around 20 Afrikaner academics to meet with the ANC in England in November 1987, in the first of a series of meetings that were to continue every few months until the middle of 1990, a de facto arm's-length dialogue between the National Intelligence Service and the ANC was instituted. Tom Mbeki headed the ANC delegations, and he was accompanied by senior figures such as Aziz Pahad and Intelligence Chief Jacob Zuma. Despite the initial intention to divide and rule the ANC, Barnard did not keep Mandela entirely in the dark, on one occasion remarking, We hear Tabo Mbeki is somebody who wants negotiations. Have you any objection if we talk to him? In June 1989, Barnard asked his now-established channel, Willy Esterhazer, to meet Tabo Mbeki in a London pub and to organise a direct meeting between ANC and National Intelligence Service intelligence heads. In the meantime, F.W. de Klerk had become acting state president after pushing out the ailing Boerter. At the first meeting of the State Security Council under his chairmanship on the 16th of August, he approved a carefully worded resolution that was designed to deceive him just as Boerter had been deceived before. It is necessary that more information should be obtained on processes concerning the ANC and the aims, alliances and potential approachability of its different leaders and groupings. To enable this to be done, special additional direct action will be necessary, particularly with the help of the national intelligence functionaries. In this way, the SSC unknowingly authorized clandestine meetings between National Intelligence Service and ANC heads in Lucerne and then Bern, Switzerland in September. Switzerland was the favoured venue because it was politically neutral, still did not demand travel visas for South Africans, and possessed confidential banking services. These meetings brought together Barnard, Lowe, Marit Sparwater and Fani van der Merwe with Thabo Mbeki, Jacob Zuma and the soon-to-be intelligence minister Joan Klantler. In these negotiations, contentious issues such as the repatriation of liberation movement fighters how to define and deal with political prisoners, and the release of Mandela were discussed. All of those present were aware that the talks were not held with the knowledge or approval of either the state president or of Nelson Mandela, although Mbeki and Zuma would have been reporting their actions to Tambo and the NEC. Only later did Barnard brief de Klerk on his initiative, leading the president to respond with anger and then enthusiasm. As historian James Sanders observes, F.W. de Klerk did not have a security history as a politician and, far from adopting the NIS, he was, in effect, adopted by Neil Barnard. For his part, Mbeki was severely criticised by some members of the NEC for talking to the National Intelligence Service. He was vulnerable already as a black Englishman whose 1974 wedding contrasted starkly with the simultaneous upsurge in the detention and torture of domestic black consciousness activists. For later Mandela biographer Anthony Sampson, his Englishness is superficially apparent in his quiet style, his sports jackets, his curved pipe, precise speech and English friendships. He extended them through his marriage. He married Zanele Tlamini at Farnham Castle, where her sister, Edith, who had once been a cover girl for the magazine Drum, then lived with her husband, Wilfred Grenville Grey, the son-in-law of the Earl of March, who as the Duke of Richmond later became Chancellor of Sussex University. The attacks on Mbeki were primarily positional, attempts by the left to establish the ascendancy of their favoured candidate, Chris Harney, as Tombo's heir apparent. While Barnard was reaching out to Mandela and Mbeki, NIS was also part of a wider state security system. At the zenith of the system was the State Security Council, the body charged with coordinating and directing state intelligence and military initiatives and reporting directly to the President. The State Security Council contained the heads of the armed forces, security police, national intelligence service 
and the Military Intelligence Department, as well as the Police Commissioner. It had a strategic communications wing known as STRATCOM, which engaged in propaganda work, disinformation, the infiltration of political organizations, and illegal activities such as assassination and sabotage. The State Security Council also directed a national security management system, a network of 500 regional and local management centers. Their purpose was to harmonize intelligence gathering and to coordinate the actions of the security police, national and municipal police forces, civilian commando units and other paramilitary units such as mine security. It was here, of course, that Barnard got to know Rolf Mayer, minister responsible for the national security management system between 1986 and 1988. Through the State Security Council, Barnard was fully informed about government's funding of offensive paramilitary units, which were later to destabilize negotiations. According to one confidential report, Barnard made major objections to the creation of such a force and indicated that the political risks associated with it were so great that he could not support it. Ultimately, the State Security Council decided to go ahead and members of Inkata were indeed given paramilitary training. As the third force moved from being a formal state-sponsored strategy to a more amorphous network of elements hostile to negotiation, especially after de Klerk began to unravel the state security system, Barnard continued to gather valuable intelligence about Inkata, the white right and the military as well as about his ANC opposite numbers. The government team developed later into a triumvirate of key negotiators, Barnard, the official Fani van der Merwe, and the politician Rolf Meyer, who were able to back up the judgment calls of their very active principal de Klerk. Constitutional Development Minister Gerrit Verleun was for a time an important intellectual presence, although not himself a negotiator, until he resigned as a result of illness later in 1992. One other figure, Tersius Delport, was to play a higher-profile role in the 1992 collapse of Cadessa. While the politicians were to come and go, with the exception of de Klerk and Meyer, Barnard and van der Merwe would remain at the heart of the government negotiating team until the very end. Unlike the surprisingly indiscreet spooks and spies, business people have mostly been quiet about the role they played in bringing the ANC and government together. Among scholars, Merle Lipton has most successfully registered the importance of business in the unravelling of apartheid. She emphasises that business is not homogenous and the interests and intentions of companies change over time. Apartheid initially benefited many companies as a result of access to a cheap and controlled workforce. But as the economy developed, some sectors began to demand a skilled and permanent workforce and so the removal of Bantu education and influx control. Other companies found that apartheid constrained the growth of the domestic consumer market or undermined export performance. Over time, there was a growing convergence of interests in favor of reform and concerted pressure by business organizations to have apartheid brought to an end. The Federated Chamber of Industries and the Associated Chambers of Commerce sometimes came out openly against aspects of apartheid that directly harmed businesses, such as racial job reservation, the past laws, segregated education and restrictions on home ownership. Anglo-American was of course prominent in modernizing initiatives such as the Urban Foundation. White business people were, however, products of their time and they were rarely motivated to abolish apartheid on moral grounds. One analyst who went to work for the Urban Foundation in 1981 and was put to work arguing for the abolition of influx controls was told that moral arguments were specifically prohibited and the case needed to be made on pragmatic grounds only. There was correspondingly almost no effort by business to recognize the human rights of Africans or to secure a universal franchise. One analyst who played a modest role in bringing business and ANC together, Chris O'Neill, describes early 1980s businesses as passive and singularly ineffective in doing anything. For Nell, business people were motivated primarily 
by their desire not to antagonize government. Some business activity was spurred in 1984 by a devastating piece of research conducted under the auspices of the UNISA Business School's Orwellian-sounding project-free enterprise. This research found that most South Africans, perhaps unsurprisingly, had a jaundiced and allegedly inaccurate view of business, understanding it, perhaps accurately, as a rapacious exploiter of ordinary black people. At the instigation of the chief executive of Barclays South Africa, Project Free Enterprise went on to explore what needed to be done to educate the black workforce about the wholesome character and wide-ranging prudential advantages of free enterprise. Barclays South Africa was a wholly owned subsidiary of Anglo-American and its involvement was almost certainly part of a wider strategy by newly installed Anglo chairman Gavin Relly to initiate contacts with the UDF using the giant company's network of subsidiaries. In 1985, Christo Nell, the analyst recruited to conduct the research, had concluded that it was impossible to educate people about the benefits of the capitalist system if they were, in fact, not deriving any. Business organizations began to see the need to argue openly against the evils of the apartheid system if popular views of the character of the market economy were to change. A president of the FCI, John Wilson, decided to take a stand against apartheid practices. In 1985, he launched a business charter of human rights. When Wilson intervened to oppose a specific instance of forced removals in the Brits area, however, and then argued publicly for the release of Nelson Mandela, the response by FCI's member companies was devastating. Dozens of them simply resigned their memberships and withdrew their funding, leading the federation to collapse. Nell was then approached by a small group of businessmen who asked him to arrange a meeting with what they termed the legitimate black leadership. This group tellingly included Anglo's political strategist Zach de Beer and Chris Ball from Barclays, South Africa, as well as Southern Life's Neil Chapman, prominent financier Mervyn King, and well-known judge Anton Mostert. They provided Nell with a slush fund to finance the logistics of the meetings they proposed. Nell managed to link up with the acting UDF head Murphy Morobi, who was in hiding, as well as treasurer Azar Kachalia and President Albertina Sisulu. Other key UDF leaders, including Popo Malefi and Tero Lakota, were at that time being tried for treason. Through the services of their lawyer, George Bezos, Nell was later able to meet with them in their cells, the same dungeons in which the Ravonia trialists had been held, and to secure their assent to a series of meetings. Nell also approached heavyweight Kosatu leaders, including Sir Ramaphosa, Sidney Mufamadi and Jay Naidu, but they refused to participate, possibly because of the potential of such meetings to compromise them in the eyes of their members. Across 1986, a small group of businessmen held late-night meetings with Azar Kachalia and Murphy Morobi. By late 1986, a willingness had emerged to arrange for a more substantial meeting, and other UDF leaders, including Vali Musa and Kaskuvadia, were becoming involved. However, the reticence of business leaders continued to be a stumbling block to meaningful talks. Chris O'Neill, on one occasion, brought more than a dozen business leaders to the Indaba Hotel north of Johannesburg, for a meeting with Albertina Sisulu. Before leaving to collect Sisulu, he explained that they would be talking to a black leader subject to a banning order. They would therefore be breaking the law. When he returned with Sisulu, all but a handful of the businessmen had fled. Despite these difficulties, hundreds of small meetings, often one-on-one, continued between business, UDF and increasingly trade unions. A major step forward came in 1987 when Christo Nell and others went on Frederick von Salzlubert's mission to Dakar. The exile ANC leadership had been in contact with the UDF about the negotiations with business and they were able at Dakar to give their stamp of approval to a continuation of this internal dialogue. Progress was interrupted by the arrest of Musa and Morobe in late 1987, and a major intensification of the state of emergency in February 1988. Nevertheless, in August 1988, 
A meeting at last took place at the Brudestrom conference facility between around 25 business leaders, 15 sympathetic academics, and a substantial part of the internal black leadership, most of whom were subject to restrictions. As Akachalia, who with Nell was joint facilitator, began the meeting by joking that as a result of his restriction order, I'll be talking just to Chris Donnell. If the rest of you want to listen, well, that's up to you. The meeting divided immediately into two hostile camps. The black leaders were all clear in their demands for majority rule in a unitary state to be brought about with immediate effect. Despite the fact that the business people were a self-selected fraction of the business class, those willing to break the law in order to talk to UDF leaders, they were simply unable to conceive of a South Africa governed by black people. Nell managed to overcome this sense of impossibility by encouraging the white participants to work through a scenario in which, by 2050, there would be a black president. Nell also developed an intellectual framework to take the racial emotion out of the opposition between groups at the meeting. In his schema, there were two main kinds of actors in South Africa and at the conference. On the one hand, there were revolutionaries who were seeking the overthrow of the existing order. On the other, there were reformers seeking to change apartheid capitalism gradually. What was needed, Nell argued, was a small group of transformers who would be able to form a bridge between the revolutionaries and the reformers. On the last day of the conference, the black leaders demanded that the business people form themselves into a body with the threat that otherwise there would be no further talks. Very few executives walked away, but their caution was evident in their disagreement over the choice of a name. When business movement for democracy was suggested, there was the threat of a walkout. In the end, the name Consultative Business Movement, CBM, emerged. Although it started with only a dozen paid-up members, the CBM quickly snowballed, and within months more than a 100 businesses were signed up. The CBM instituted a national consultative process that ran for almost two years in 1989 and 1990. UDF and Kosati organizers came together with business people, usually over a weekend, with the inclusion of time for informal socializing that was to prove so effective at breaking down barriers across the transition process. UDF and later MDM activists were almost always strongly anti-capitalist in orientation and many considered themselves to be Marxists. However, the business people at least had in their favor that they were not the National Party and behind the radical rhetoric of the UDF and Kosatu, there was a good deal of pragmatism and willingness to engage with the concerns of business. This was just one of many consultative processes underway in which issues fundamental to the role of business in the future of the society were discussed. One of these, the racial inequalities of ownership of the South African economy, allowed participants to reflect on what was later to become black economic empowerment policy. Moreover, in the relationships that were built between activists and business people, networks began to emerge that in later years were to turn into business relationships. The process also allowed the biggest force in the economy, Anglo-American, to enter into indirect interaction with the liberation forces. Anglo was initially very careful not to participate openly in the consultative business movement, but important CBM leaders were executives in Anglo's subsidiaries. Anglo was happy to play a conservative game with the South Africa Foundation, a developmental role with the Urban Foundation and now a more reformist part with the CBM. When, in the course of 1990, it became clear that CBM was gaining ground, Anglo's Michael Spicer took up a position as deputy chair of the National Consultative Group of the CBM. Spicer was inevitably a decisive figure in shaping the deliberations and actions of the body thereafter, and he served as the eyes and ears of his hero and mentor, Gavin Reilly. Nell describes him as a watchdog. Other members of the committee joked that he was Cardinal Richelieu to Gavin Reilly's King Louis XIII. 
On the 2nd of February 1990, when President F.W. de Klerk announced the unbanning of the ANC and the impending release of Nelson Mandela, there were therefore already elaborate but fragmented relationships between various exile, intelligence, business and struggle leaders. Once the state of emergency was lifted and exiles started to return in large numbers, lines of authority and communication inevitably became very confused. In March 1990, an agreement was reached to begin formal discussions on the 11th of April. Senior repatriated exiles Jacob Zuma, Matthews Pauza and Penwell Maduna were initially put in charge and a steering committee was assembled to identify remaining obstacles to negotiation. Further arrivals of exiles, however, kept changing the composition of the negotiating team. On the 27th of April, major figures returned. Thabo Mbeki, head of the ANC's Department of International Affairs, Ruth Mompati, Joe Slovo, the General Secretary of the South African Communist Party, Joe Modise, the commander of Mkonto Wesizwe, and Alfred Nzor, ANC Secretary General. The removal of obstacles to multi-party negotiations moved along extremely slowly. One narrative of the transition described this period as talking about talking about talks. The Groteskir Minute, signed on the 4th of May 1990, committed the ANC and the National Party only in very general terms to a negotiated settlement and to the reduction of the climate of violence and intimidation. Matters were further complicated in July 1990 when Operation Vula operatives, including Mac Maharaj, were detained under the Internal Security Act. Maharaj had left the country secretly in May and re-entered legally in June with the intention of joining the ANC negotiators above ground. The arrest of Maharaj panicked the regime's intelligence services. Maharaj observes that it was only with his detention that they picked up evidence that Nelson was in communication with Oliver Tambo from Victor Verstaar prison. The strategy of dividing him from the ANC or dividing the ANC into two wings could not work, and it could not work because they woke up with a shock that he was at one with O.R., While the regime adjusted its preconceptions, the ANC's primarily exile negotiators continued to be preoccupied with amnesty and armaments, issues that were central to them but ultimately marginal to an overall settlement. The Pretoria Minute, signed on the 6th of August 1990, addressed itself to the definition and release of political prisoners and the suspension of armed actions. On the 12th of February 1991, the so-called DF Milan Accord was signed clarifying the Pretoria Minute's agreement about arms control, committing the MK to register and control its weapons, and securing automatic indemnity for repatriated MK cadres. By April 1991, the slow pace of movement was beginning to create frustration. Violence was escalating across the country and ANC negotiators lamented the government's inability or unwillingness to address this problem directly. While de Klerk portrayed violence as a justification for delay, the ANC leadership argued that government itself was responsible, by commission or by omission, for the devastation. On the 5th of April 1991, the ANC demanded the removal of Defence Minister Magnus Malan and Law and Order Minister Adrian Flock and insisted that informal and paramilitary networks engaging in destabilisation across the country must be curtailed. It was in the context of this frustration and violence that Ramaphosa's July 1991 election as Secretary-General and, soon after, his appointment as Head of the Negotiations Commission must be understood. The new frontline negotiating team, including Joe Slovo, Vali Musa, and soon the omnipresent Mac Maharaj, were determined to step up the pace of negotiations and place the National Party under redoubled pressure. Over time, two key relationships emerged as the backbone of the negotiations. The first was between Fani van der Merwe and Mac Maharaj. Like Maharaj, van der Merwe was a details man and the de facto operational head of the government team. As a career civil servant, he'd worked in the departments of justice and home affairs. As director general with responsibility for prisons, he was one of the four officials, along with Neil Barnard, who attended formal meetings with Nelson Mandela. 
he discovered in Maharaj a shared admiration for Mandela and his idiosyncrasies. In 1989, he became what is known as the Constitutional Advisor on Constitutional Development, the equivalent of the Director General in what was then a full government department. From this position, he was able to steer the thought and actions of his political principles, Chris Hienus, Gerrit Verlun, and finally Rolf Meyer. The relationship between Mac and Fani, as the co-joined pair became known, was probably more important to the negotiations than the more celebrated collaboration between Rolf Meyer and Cyril Ramaphosa. They met for the first time at the end of November 1990 in preparatory meetings to predetermine the stages through which a settlement would have to proceed. Already they were working in parallel, Mac effectively in charge of the ANC's detailed operations and Fani in command of the governments. Their immediate mutual respect, dry sense of humour and reticence about publicity marked them out as a perfect backroom team. They later composed the two-man secretariat of CODESA and steered the agenda and deliberations of its management committee. In the later multi-party negotiating process, they worked together on the 10-person planning committee and formed, along with the IFP's token, Ben Gubani, the subcommittee that dealt with intractable issues. Maharaj was a powerful personality and intellect within the ANC team, and through his Robben Island, South African Communist Party, Lusaka and Vula networks, he had comprehensive knowledge of his own constituency. He was sometimes temperamental, as is indicated by his repeated resignations and conflicts with comrades. This made him less well-suited to the negotiating process itself than his colleagues Ramaphosa and Vali Musa. Many years later, when he was Minister of Transport, Maharaj was confronted in his office by a group of gun-packing Cape Flats taxi bosses who shouldered their way past his security guards. His instinct was to respond with aggression, a testimony to the ascendancy that his anger could sometimes secure over his prudence. If Mac and Fani had primary responsibility for ensuring that disputes were avoided through advanced planning, Cyril Ramaphosa and Rolf Mayer were famously the resolving agents of those intractable disputes that did arise. Mayer is often portrayed by critics as a man of limited intelligence who was unable to comprehend the complexity of the negotiations. It is true that, like Cyril, he was never destined to leave politics for a career in rocket science, However, to a far greater extent than F.W. de Klerk, who was more than his equal partner in decision-making, he has become a scapegoat for conservative Afrikaners who believe that too much was given away in the negotiations. His rival, Tashis Delport, always believed Mayer would stab the president, whom Delport adored, in the back and forewarned de Klerk not to trust him. He's Gullum! Do you know the Afrikaans' word skullum? He's shifty. He's sly. He's not above a little bit of underhand dealings to get his own way. I don't trust him. I don't believe everything he says. Mayer's actions loyally followed de Klerk's instructions, however, and his thinking was in line with that of his senior Gerrit Verlun. Verlun was a pragmatist who had softened the National Party's negotiation position dramatically. In a confidential July 1991 interview, he conceded that I don't think it is likely that we will find it possible to negotiate a new constitution with ethnic definitions as a basis for political representation. Once groups are defined in a constitution, there is a certain rigidity and a certain inflexibility which militates against the concept of voluntary association. For this reason, he already accepted that you could not do more than provide guidelines and procedures in the Constitution for groups who want to constitute themselves and have themselves recognized for the purpose of political protection in the constitutional setup. Indeed, Fulun believed that National Party thinking needed a third phase in which the instrument to be considered is no longer so much groups as such, but groups as articulating themselves through political parties. The kind of protection that we should seek is not so much minority protection for ethnically defined groups, 
but minority protection for political parties. In this way, Fulun, as much as Mayer, was already close to embracing a conventional constitutional settlement. Mayer was also a vastly experienced politician. Between 1986 and 1988, he'd been Deputy Minister of Police with special responsibility for overseeing the National Security Management System, where, it may be recalled, he helped Bobby Godsell to protect the civil rights of non-striking mine workers. The job was one of the most politically sensitive in government and demonstrated the high regard in which he was held by Boerter. It also exposed him to township and hostile violence and left him in no doubt about the scale and depth of social unrest. Mayer was chosen by de Klerk to succeed in ailing Fulun in May 1992, in part because there was a serious dearth of talent in the cabinet. However, he was also elevated because of his good relations with the ANC, his familiarity with Neil Barnard and the intelligence establishment, and perhaps especially for his perceived good relations with Cyril. He'd gone out of his way to cultivate these good relations. They'd first met at Heathrow Airport in 1988, entirely by chance, while one was leaving and the other arriving. They agreed that they must soon meet and talk. When Cyril became head of the ANC Negotiations Commission in the middle of 1991, Mayer, who had been appointed Minister of Defence for a brief period, but was still part of the National Party's negotiating team, wanted urgently to get close to him. This resulted in a very famous and very fishy meeting. Of all the events during the negotiations, one meeting in August 1991 has been the most widely narrated. Alistair Sparks, in the prologue to his sparkling 1994 book Tomorrow is Another Country, tells of the tale of the trout hook. On his account, Rolf Mayer and his family travelled by helicopter to Havelock Trout Farm in the Transvaal Lowfelt at the behest of Sidney Frankel, a mutual friend of Cyril and Rolf, who thought it would be a good idea for them to get to know each other better. Ramaphosa and his family were already at the farm. Just before the mayors arrived, Frankel's daughter fell and broke her arm. Her parents were forced to leave on the helicopter that had conveyed Rolf. Cyril and Rolf and their families were left alone. The mayor children, observing that this was a trout farm, asked if they could try out fly fishing. Rolf had no knowledge of the sport, but Cyril volunteered to teach them at the dam below their chalets. When Rolf tried to cast off, a hook became deeply embedded in a finger of his left hand. Despite the efforts of Cyril's second wife, Nomazizi, a trained nurse, they could not remove it. According to Sparks's account, Cyril uttered the famous words, Rolf, there's only one way to do this. Cyril pulled out a bottle of whiskey from his pockets and encouraged Mayer to drink. Then he fetched some pliers. If you've never trusted an ANC person before, Sparks obliged Cyril implausibly to remark, you'd better get ready to do so now. Cyril wrenched the hook from Rolf's finger with a single pull. Mayer then purportedly remarked, imagine this, well, Cyril, don't ever say I didn't trust you. The implausibility of the dialogue has led sceptics to question the veracity of the story. Sparks's source was the fishing party's host, Sidney Frankel, and he checked with both Mayer and Ramaphosa to ensure their versions were consistent. Frankel's reputation and credibility were destroyed before the end of his life. It is curious, moreover, that Ramaphosa made the following remarks to the writer Padrego Malley in response to a question about the importance of trust in the negotiations only a few days after he returned from the fishing trip. In a year's time, when you come back, I will be able to tell you a very interesting story. I don't want to tell it now, but a very, very interesting story that has to deal with trust, how you build up trust, because you build that up in the process. While Ramaphosa might have had some quite different story in mind, cynics will speculate that Cyril had already elaborated the parable of the fishhook, but perhaps not yet in polished form. He had clearly tired of the fishy tale by 1995 when he replied to Patty Waldmeyer's question if he and Rolf had become friends. No, 
We haven't become friends. Faultmau countered that they were known to share in-jokes in the management committee, passing notes to each other and chuckling. Sura responded, I think friendship goes beyond that. You want to meet your friend, have meals with him, spend time in their homes, and they do the same with you. Go fishing together. They never fish together? No. Faultmau promised not to ask about the hook. The most persuasive evidence for the truth of the story is that it is almost too corny to have been made up. It captured the imagination of South Africans and well-wishers overseas and brought out the human dimension of negotiations. For Cyril, when you contest for state power, you always find that negotiations are between enemies. Enemies don't usually trust each other and they don't really respect each other, but you see that grows out of a process. As you go on, you build relationships, you cut deals on small little issues that may be insignificant and, as you both deliver, as your stature grows in the eye of the other, then you become more trustful of the other. This detached, even forensic account of the nature of trust is of course silent about Ramaphosa's scarring experience at Num, where those whom he trusted were unable to deliver on their promises. The fishhook story unsettles some readers, perhaps because it is the white man and not the black who has to be helped out of his predicament. Roger Fisher and Daniel Fisher at the Harvard Negotiation Project, at least as reported in the Harvard Gazette, reverse the protagonists and so restore the narrative of the trusting native. Ramaphosa and Mayer forged a bond through their common interest in fly fishing, they unpromisingly begin. Ramaphosa got a fishhook stuck in his thumb and Mayer was able to extract it relatively painlessly. Some weeks later, the negotiations came to a particularly tricky point. Mayer turned to Ramaphosa and said, Trust me. With the memory of the fishhook fresh in his mind, Ramaphosa was able to trust and the negotiation proceeded. For Frankel himself, the story had racial overtones. He later recalled that the thought that struck him most forcibly on the fateful day was that while Mrs. Mayer was anxiously watching over her shoulder, this black woman had been touching the minister. Most South African whites would by now have erased such a frank recollection from their memory of events. The true significance of Sparks's story is that the host, Sidney Frankel, was chairman of Frankel Pollock, the largest stockbroker on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, and so facilitated relationships between foreign and domestic investors and government. By 1987, Frankel was well connected by the left in government, with people such as Gerrit Verlun, Baron Duplessis and Rolf Meyer, and he began to reach out to the UDF. On one occasion, he recalls, P.W. Boerter discovered that Baron Duplessis was attending a Frankel Pollock conference where he was talking to a senior UDF member. Boerter had Duplessis summoned to a telephone and instructed him to leave forthwith. Frankel met Cyril at one of his own investment conferences. The two men, in his recollection, made an immediate connection and soon became best pals. Frankel was not a liberal on the Anglo model, Indeed, cutting remarks were made at the time, and still are today, about his late and rapid conversion to the cause of non-racial government. He was a practical man rather than a liberal moralist. Once Mandela was released, and with Cyril in control of his diary, Frankel was able to bring the old man to the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Designating himself Comrade Frankel, he telephoned Mandela towards the end of 1990 and invited him to visit the exchange for lunch. When Mandela and Frankel stepped onto the floor of the exchange together, trading stopped. At this time, Mandela was associated with the ANC's commitment to nationalization. Out of sight of Mandela, one of the brokers spat on the floor next to Frankel and called him a kafarbuti. After Mandela departed, Frankel received numerous abusive telephone calls with one colleague telling him he was an arsehole to bring the ANC leader to the exchange. At Frankel's request, Ramaphosa later arranged a regular breakfast every six weeks 
at the opulent Transvaal Automobile Club at which ANC leaders could informally chat with senior business people. Frankel was uncertain what Cyril believed then or believed later about economic policy. Nevertheless, he was convinced that interaction with the investment community helped change Cyril's mindset and turned him against his former purported commitment to communism. Cyril's thinking on the relationship between politics and business was, however, at a more advanced stage than this account suggests. On one occasion, while Cyril was still NUM General Secretary, Frederick von Salslabert organized a meeting between the mine workers' leader and his arch-opponent, the aging Anglo-magnate Harry Oppenheimer. Cyril remarked to the old man on how difficult life was for people in Soweto. Oppenheimer replied, That is fascinating, Mr. Ramaphosa. Cyril complained that he had to pay more for each unit of electricity he consumed in Soweto than Oppenheimer had to pay at Brenthurst. That is very fascinating, Mr. Ramaphosa. Finally, Cyril exploded and launched one of his trademark tirades against big business, culminating in a threat, We're going to nationalize all your mines. That is very fascinating, Mr. Ramaphosa, and that may be true, the old man responded coolly, but a gold mine is only a hole in the ground. Oppenheimer's point was that a working mine requires a complex system of skills and organization, without which it is nothing. In the perhaps patronizing opinion of Fonsal Slabbert, this was a defining moment in Ramaphosa's economic education. Business sponsors like Frankel made it possible for negotiators like Ramaphosa and Mayer to meet in comfortable and informal circumstances out of the public eye. One opportunity was Frankel's regular biannual investment conference held in February and July each year. They also met at an investor's jamboree organized by Frankel on the opulent overnight blue train between Johannesburg and Cape Town. Mayer and Ramaphosa spent time together as well on a business-sponsored trip to Sabi Sabi Game Reserve, where Mayer remembers that nighttime game drives provided an opportunity to talk in confidence for hours. When Mayer went to see Ramaphosa at the trout farm, Frankel arranged the necessary transport for his family by calling up Sassel chairman Paul Kruger and requesting the use of one of the Parastatal's fleet of helicopters. Frankel became sufficiently trusted to perform other services for the ANC. At one stage, he was asked to help repatriate offshore ANC funds, an immensely sensitive matter that required him to liaise with Reserve Bank Governor Christals. In the very last days of the old order, he received a call from Cyril at 2 a.m. to say that the IFP had re-entered the race and glue was needed to stick IFP flyers to the bottom of ballot papers. Could Frankel, as chairman of ink manufacturer SICPA, find some supplies? Three hours later, Frankel called Cyril back to say he had been successful. Certainly, I never thought you could do that so fast. I've already made another plan. Ramaphosa convened a number of other meetings between business people and the ANC, recognizing the importance of engagement between the entrenched economic elite and the emerging political leadership. One of the most fascinating meetings was Nelson Mandela's first encounter with a business mogul after his release from prison. Predictably, the first man in the queue was the most powerful chairman in South Africa, Anglo-Americans Gavin Relly. Relly and his assistant Michael Spicer went to see Mandela at his Soweto home at a meeting Ramaphosa chaired. Outside the house, a large contingent of journalists gathered excitedly, speculating in the aftermath of Mandela's declaration in favor of nationalization, that this must have been the subject under discussion. In fact, the four men did not even mention this topic, but instead ranged over other issues, including industrial relations. As Rayleigh and Spicer left, one of the throng of reporters asked, Are you anxious about nationalization? The calm and collected Rayleigh commented, Nationalization will be subject to the test of time and circumstance. His confidence was based on Anglo's careful intelligent gathering and bridge-building with the liberation movement. 
Rally's September 1985 journey to Lusaka in defiance of the instructions of P.W. Boerter and Harry Oppenheimer had already shown him that O.R. Tambo, Tabambeki, Mac Maraj and Palo Jordan were patriotic moderates. Rally also understood that nationalization was an immense practical task requiring carefully planned administrative and legislative programs. He returned confident that the ANC's leading economic thinkers such as Tabambeki had no practical strategy for turning the idea of state ownership into a credible program of nationalization. The collapse of the USSR went on to discourage even die-hard proponents of nationalization. Joe Slovo told a 19th of July 1990 radio audience that we do not believe that the transfer of ownership from a board of directors to a board of bureaucrats will solve our economic problem. Isop Pahad told an interview in the same year that the South African Communist Party doesn't have concrete economic policies as yet. The extent of the intervention must be determined by a whole lot of factors of which we are not even in control and on which we do not have information. Jeremy Cronin similarly observed that if you take away from Anglo-American a whole lot of the economy and then give it over to a bunch of bureaucrats, workers have not been empowered, bureaucrats have. Trevor Manuel, shortly to become a NEC economic policy head, concurred that the South African Communist Party would accept the existence of a mixed economy. Mandela sealed this implicit bargain between ANC and business. The liberation movement would protect private property and business freedom. In return, business would not obstruct transition and would later move to redress the racial injustice that characterized the economy. Mandela even agreed to participate in meetings with the so-called Brenthurst Group, an informal panel of the half-dozen most powerful businessmen in South Africa, named after its meeting place, Harry and later Nicky Oppenheimer's home. In October 1991, a meeting of liberation movement activists under the Patriotic Front umbrella proposed the creation of an interim government and a constituent assembly. To this, the National Party responded with its vision of an interim constitution followed by a 10-year government of national unity. The distance between the moderates on both sides was closing. Ramaphosa observed that it is not inconceivable that we might have some of the people who've been in charge of certain departments in government in the new government. You could have a finance minister who is still in office today being in office in, say, an ANC government. My own view, and this is a personal one, is that you could actually have the period of transition through an interim government. He also observed that there isn't any difference between us and de Klerk with regard to a question of minorities. De Klerk, he believed, had come round to the idea of a Bill of Rights to protect individuals rather than a constitution that explicitly defended unpalatable group rights. In many countries in the world, Ramaphosa observed, it is the individual who enjoys maximum protection much more than the group, and through that you are able to have checks and balances that will make sure that the group that the individual belongs to is not marginalized. Rolf Mayer had reached broadly this view too, abandoning the idea of predefined group identities in 1990 and reiterating that majoritarianism had not been ruled out, although we wouldn't like to see a situation where any form of domination by the majority takes place at the expense of the minorities. Mayer proposed five mechanisms to protect against this outcome, a Bill of Rights, the evolution of power to regional and local government levels, autonomy of authority at lower levels of devolved power, checks and balances such as a bicameral parliament and president and prime minister coming from different houses, and finally, proportional representation. Reflecting on this moderate menu of constitutional instruments, he commented, one should most likely look at the combination of all these to find the right answer, constitutionally speaking. A sense that the time was right for formal negotiations was in the air. The way the initiative was taken reflected the emerging significance of the channel between Ramaphosa and Mayer, notwithstanding the fact that Kerak Fulyun was still in charge of the state's negotiating team. 
Mayer was invited by the journalist Rodney Pinder to attend a meeting of foreign correspondents one Friday evening in the middle of October 1991. Pinder saw to it that Mayer was seated at the same table as the South African Communist Party General Secretary Joe Slovo. As the evening progressed and the wine flowed, the two conversed about how, under Ramaphosa's firmer hand, obstacles to negotiation had now been essentially removed or neutralized. The two parted amicably. On Sunday morning, Mayer received a phone call from Ramaphosa, who had a short message to convey. Madiba says it's time to start talking. Within days, the ANC and National Party began to prepare for Codessa. For Mayer, the phone call signaled his growing status and marked the beginning of his special relationship with Ramaphosa. At last, the time had arrived for multi-party talks to begin.